Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently recorded a bonus episode on Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, and we have another episode in the works about the new Talk to Me. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. Our regular co-host Tasha Robinson has taken an off, 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 off Broadway role in Cornelius McGillicuddy and his truly amazing flying machine, but she'll be back on our lovable Midwest community podcast soon. This week, we're putting on a show about putting on shows. But before we talk about the pairing, I wanted to ask you both, what is the most amateurish stage production you've ever attended? Because I have, I have one for sure. <laughs> this is a question just that Scott wants. I to really answer. want to answer. I really want to share this anecdote. <laughs> yes, but uh, I'll let you all go first. I avoid bad theater like the plague. It's just a. Uh... <laughs> I, I, it makes me too physically uncomfortable. So I couldn't think of a uh, an amateurs production I've attended. But uh, it, when I was much, much, much younger, I did uh, certainly participate in some very amateurish productions in my middle school theater. And one in particular comes to mind. I can't remember the title of the play. It was a, a I think it may have been written by the drama teacher. It was not a <laughs> Uh, an established work, but it involved a school science lab experiment that turned all the students into grasshoppers. And the reason I rec- remember it is it's because it required me to do some stunt work for the first time in my young life uh, that involved me getting thrown into a trash can, and I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so that that was a quality... That yeah. was a quality bo- a moment. Stun in the show. work, green face paint. Yeah, I love it. Was, it. it was good. What it. about you, Keith? I I kind of remember it was an old complaint <laughs> about my college <laughs> production. I, I saw of the of the play Prelude to a Kiss, uh, which was later turned into a film. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it involves a body swap, and uh, at a climactic moment, it involves these two people accepting that they are the people they love, even though they're in different bodies. It's fuzzy on the details, but but it's. Two men at this point, even though one of them was a woman in a, in a now in a man's body. The play is called Prelude to a Kiss. And here in the early 90s at a fairly conservative college that I didn't realize quite, was quite that conservative when I went to it, the two actors in the production decided, eh, you know, a kiss might be too much. So let's just have <laughs> them hug. You know, that's fine, right? And, you know, oh, never mind. No. It's called Prelude to a Kiss. So I guess it's, I'm sure that the performances were fine otherwise. So amateurish, oh not in, amateurish and more in approach than the actual execution or, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that reminds me of the state main line. Uh, does it have to be an old bill? <laughs> the Q title of a movie. So good. So my mine is uh, my sister, my younger sister was in a, high school production she played anybody's in the in a high school production of west side story 
And one thing that you might associate with West Side Story is is the music, right? Uh, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you would you expect uh, uh, this, the score to be a robust robust <laughs> score backing score for this such a musical? Sure. Or an, an elderly woman with a piano. That... Uh. <laughs> so this uh, so this was this that's that that was what it was. So this is a high school production of West Side Story with fairly uh, shaky piano accompaniment, uh, and, and uh, I, I'll, with uh, no one could sing. And no one was even really trying uh, the, the the jets, excuse me, the sharks, I should say. There was a line that my sister and I repeated for years of the, a fairly disinterested actor saying the line, Vamanos Chico es tarde. I, that's something we kept talking about. So uh, I, think, I think I've heard you say that before, Scott. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, I, that is a line I, I, I continue to say to my sister, "Vamanos, chicos, es tarde." Um, so, uh, so that that was a, that was not a great great night at the theater. But even when a play is a little amateurish, it can still be an edifying experience for cast and audience alike. At least according to the two films we'll be watching this week. Genevieve, want to tell us about them? Sure. The new Sundance favorite theater camp uses the mockumentary format to go behind the scenes at Adirondacks, a summer camp for theater kids in upstate New York. After the camp's founder falls into a coma, the fate of this rundown operation lands with her dumb business bro son, who tries to keep the creditors away while the instructors work to stage multiple productions, including an original musical tribute to their ailing leader. The resilience of cast and crew in cobbling together this low-budget affair calls to mind Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman, another big-hearted comedy that uses fake documentary to tell the heavily improvised tale of a community production in small-town Blaine, Missouri. The play's director, played by Guest, has some experience in the more obscure corners of the New York theater world, but between a tight budget and a cast of vocally challenged locals, a hope-for Broadway bow seems unlikely. So this week, we'll learn about the musical history of the stool capital of the world and Waiting for Guffman. And then next week, we'll visit upstate New York's premier incubator of young talent and theater camp. Stay tuned. The city council of Blaine gave me the responsibility of putting together a show to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Blaine. I took the whole history of the town and I squeezed it like a piece of fresh bread. I think the uh, one really important thing that I learned in working with Corky is that I do indeed have talent. My booby made a kishka. She made it big and fat. My Zeta took one look at it and said, I can't eat that. I have found here in Blaine a gold mine of talent. I think Johnny would be so perfect, don't you? He could be the next Keanu Reeve. <laughs> We've got Ron and Sheila on board again. Midnight at the Newcomer Alan Pearl. I have a very lazy eye, which these uh, prescription glasses help. Libby. I've been working here at the DQ for about... Um, And of course, Lloyd and I, it's like rams butting heads. Certainly, Corky has brought something to our little theatrical community. He's definitely um, different. You know, he can just do everything there is to do. And there's only one other person in the world that can do that, and that's Barbara Streisand. I have a little announcement to make. Mort Guffman is going to come from New York City and see our show. 
we have one shot at this. We've got one performance with Mort Guffman coming to town. We need to hitch up our panties and run. With the 1984 classic This Is Spinal Tap, director Rob Reiner and co-writers and stars Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer satirized the pomposity and excess of rock music. The film's fake documentary format allowed the extensive improvisation on the set to seem as spontaneous on screen as it looked, as if Spinal Tap really was the loudest and stupidest rock band on earth. It also lampooned music documentaries like Don't Look Back and The Last Waltz, which interspersed live footage with behind-the-scenes moments of questionable profundity. When guest character Nigel Tufnell fiddles with a lovely piano suite in D minor, which he calls the saddest of all keys, he tells the film within a film's director that the song he's working on is called Suck My Love Pump. Over a decade later, Guest would seize the chance to return to the mockumentary format with 1996's Waiting for Guffman, applying many of the same improv techniques around a cast full of sketch comedians who were skilled at working on the fly. That includes his co-writer Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, and Fred Willard, who would all appear in later guest films like Best in Show and A Mighty Wind. But the satirical target in Waiting for Guffman would prove to be a lot trickier than the one in This is Spinal Tap. We could laugh at inept rock stars, but should we be laughing at small-town Midwesterners just trying to put on a show? Guest's answer is to balance silliness with affection, starting with his own character, Corky St. Clair, an off-off-off-off-Broadway castaway who's now Blaine Missouri's answer to Bob Fosse. With the 150th anniversary of the town coming up, the city council is counting on Corky to deliver an original musical about Blaine, touching on all the major events. This includes its founding by a wayward adventurer who believes he's discovered the Pacific Ocean, its appointment by President William McKinley as the footstool capital of the world, and its visitation by a UFO and various probe-wielding aliens. Auditions for the show lead to the casting of veterans of past Corky St. Clair productions, like the Albertsons, husband and wife travel agents played by O'Hara and Willard, and Libby Mae Brown, a Dairy Queen employee played by Posey. New to the Blaine Troop is Levy as the town dentist, Dr. Alan Pearl, and Matt Kessler as Johnny Savage, a handsome bad boy type who works at his dad's car repair shop during the day. The musical, called Red, White, and Blaine, has a lot riding on it for Corky, especially once he learns that Mort Guffman, a Broadway producer, intends to show up for the premiere. If the show impresses Guffman, it could be Corky's ticket back to the New York scene. Anyone familiar with Waiting for Cadeau, the play Waiting for Guffman is referencing in its title, can predict that Mort Guffman will be a no-show, and anyone with eyes and ears can see that Red, White, and Blaine is not exactly destined for the Tonys. But Guest and his cast used the film to celebrate the joys and follies of musical theater, which are not limited to the exceptionally or even marginally talented, and can be appreciated by an audience that is perfectly delighted to see their neighbors on stage expressing themselves. That sentiment is at the heart of Waiting for Guffman, and it's hard to question its sincerity. But can other aspects of the film be questioned? That's the tricky balancing act Waiting for Guffman and Guest's subsequent films are trying to pull off, because his mode is more affectionate parody than scathing satire. With his bowl cut and his exaggerated lisp, Corky could be understood as a gay buffoon, a man of limited talent and vision who's clinging to dreams of theatrical glory that are as delusional as his non-existent wife, Bonnie. And if we took a sour view of the film, we could also note a bit of condescension on Guest's part and the satisfaction these small-towners take in a production that's self-evidently amateurish. 
But there's an emotional generosity to waiting for Guffman that ultimately rules the day. A message that putting on a show is not limited to Broadway or even off, 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 off Broadway, but to the dentists and travel agents and auto mechanics in your town, too. In the end, Red, White, and Blaine doesn't need Mort Guffman's approval. We'll talk more about that after the break. Because when Ron had his surgery, all right, all right, all when right. Ron had his surgery, I said, hey, circumcise it while you're at it. You know, just because I've never been with anyone else. Right, Ron's well, the only is, man I've been with. Well, what coffee. surgery uh, did he have? Nothing. I don't know. Minor uh, corrective surgery. Oh, Can really? we have some coffee at this table, please? It's not minor anymore. <clears throat> well, maybe, you know, we should change no, the subject. It's, I had what, uh, you know, most guys would uh, dream of, you know, I, and I had to have uh, a penis reduction surgery. I'm sorry? Penis reduction, which said, there aren't many. You're going to say, I never heard of that because there haven't been many reduction. cases. Oh. Yeah. I said, Ron, oh, no. do something. And he said, why don't you get one of those vagina enlargements? Oh, there. Can we have some coffee over here? <clears throat> have you tried the egg rolls? They're Unbelievable. Let me ask you something. You're a medical man. Yes. Uh, I want to ask you something. If you, you... Oh! No, I, I... Oh, for heaven's sake! No! No, no please! I just no. want... have to do that. Doctor, please. Medicine man, not go near dances with Stumpy. No! So I'm curious. I mean, this, this film... This film is now 27 years old, right? Oh... The ravages of time. <laughs> uh, so, 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 you know... So I'm just kind of curious to ask the basic question here of how did waiting for Guffman hold up for you after 27 years uh, of cultural evolution? So, you know, during the pandemic, my wife and I did a rewatch of, of all of the three big guest mockumentaries, uh, leaving off mascots, which I've never seen because I've heard nothing Oof, but bad things so about bad. it. Yeah. And I think it'd be depressing to see a bad Christopher Grass <laughs> mockumentary. And I think this is the least of them. I feel like, you know, maybe still finding its, its feet. I, I really feel like Best in Show and A Mighty Wind are more are more well-developed movies. You know, I think there's more going on than just the mock, you know, the, the, the comedy and the mockumentary. There's more, there's more than that going on here, but I think there's, there's definitely with those two movies, I, I felt like there's more of investment of, of these characters fates and, you know, telling a story versus here are some funny characters, which, you know, that goes a long way. I like this movie, but, but I, I, I think it's the least of those three. I haven't uh, revisited all of uh, guests uh, recently like you have, Keith, but I, I think I agree with that assessment still. I, I enjoy Waiting for Guffman very much every time I see it, but it feel I feels like it never really changes uh you know it's it's like once i feel like once you experience this film it just it stays the same kind of uh, or in it's all about the performances uh with this like the story is just kind of is what it is you know Mm -hmm. and like even the the twist is kind of right there in the title assuming you know the the play that it's referencing you know so there's not a lot of, of I guess, uh, surprise uh, in in waiting for Guffman, but at the same time, it's kind of just a pleasure to spend time with Guest's troupe. Uh, and like I said, it is so much about the performances here, uh, as as in all of his films. And you know, I, this one in particular feels more about Guest than any of the rest of of, of the crew, and, and about Corky St. Clair, just because that is such a a memorable character, I think the most memorable of all of this group, and that performance is equally memorable. 
that said, you know, there is the him playing gay element of it, which is, you know, I think you kind of have to just acknowledge it and move past it whenever <laughs> you, 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 you watch uh-huh. this film. Um, it's just like part of the, the era in which it came out and the, you know, kind of the vein of comedy in which it exists. And, you know, it's it's mildly uncomfortable but a lot about these movies are are mildly uncomfortable in different ways so point is waiting for guffman i still enjoy it it's not like it didn't grow on me more it didn't lessen in my estimation it is it's just still what it's always been for me yeah i mean i think i'm i i agree with both of you though though i i do want to shout out uh uh, Christopher Guest's debut film, uh, The Big Picture, uh, a film I like quite a bit, even though it's not really done in this format at all. You know, I, I think Guest in his troupe sort of refined their style a bit more with Best in Show and In a Mighty Wind. Uh, they, those seem like like richer films and a little more purposeful. But I think you have to kind of get there. You know, if I can recall this correctly, uh, you know, there really wasn't anything like Waiting for Guffman, when, except for mm-hmm. This is Spinal Tap. And This is Spinal Tap was 12 years before Waiting for Guffman happened. So we there wasn't, the, the, it wasn't like, you know, the, the improvised mockumentary f- format was a thing that a lot of people mm-hmm. were doing. And and so it was something that, you know, guest obviously was familiar with. And, and he was with a group of actors who also knew, you know, one actor aside, uh, you know, all had, you know, experience in improvisation in kind of working this, this method where you kind of have a basic outline of where you're going, but, but how you get there and how you get there together is going to be different take by take. And, and you kind of find a movie that way that's a technique that's an original technique that's that there's not a not necessarily any a lot of roadmaps for how to get that done so i kind of do appreciate waiting for guffman for being the movie that kind of started you know where he kind of started to do that and try and try to figure it out and it, and i do and i remember at the time it seeming like quite an original piece of work you know and in and, and people uh, critics for the most part responded accordingly though i was quite shocked to see that it wasn't really that successful in its theatrical run. It would kind of it lost money, which just, I, which I, I can't fathom. It just, it struck me as kind of a phenomenon at the time, but it, 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 it was not. Was it, I feel like it was more of a DVD because I, I, my first time seeing it was in college yeah. on, on DVD. I remember. So I think it may have been more of like a home video phenomenon. It seems like, it almost seems like all of his films have been that way too. Yeah. You know, it, but the big picture also was one that, that did not have much of a theatrical life, but kind of caught on a little bit. And, and uh, you know, best in show and a mighty wind are, are also things that people kind of feel comfortable watching at, at home. I think there are also films that once you find them, you're going to rewatch them. They're very rewatchable and you're going to tell others about them. So I think there's a nice, you know, it has a word of mouth going for it too. Yeah. So, I, you know, one of the things, uh, and this is something we'll be able to talk a little bit about with theater camp as well when we get to it, is is what the mockumentary format kind of brings to this movie and, and what some of the, maybe the, some of the limitations of it of that format are as well. I mean, what, what would you say here with waiting for Guffman? Like what, what does that, what does the format do for this movie? And are there times where you're like, uh, this is a burden. This is kind of keeping it from, you know, getting where it should go. Hmm. I don't know. I don't really see it as limitations. Cause I think it works really well for the most part. I, I do think it is harder to tell a narrative story, particularly when you have 
a lot of improvisation and you know and and the oh, the plot is so loose i think i like i said before i think he got i think this troupe and and guest and and co-writers got better at that as they as they went along so there's there is kind of um you know a, a shagginess to it but it's also that shagginess is not reflected in the running time i think like spinal tap it's just it's edited down to the best and most essential stuff, which I think I think is key, and I think that's something that other people don't always do well when doing this. Like I remember when I worked at the video store, there was like a bootleg of like a yes. I, I want to say a three hour version of Spinal yes. Tap, and you yes. take it home, it's like oh boy, it's over twice as much of the movie I love, and you go like oh I see why this was edited, you know? <laughs> you really it is there's just a lot you, you had to um, there's you, you got to throw out a lot to make these things work. One thing that I would call out, not really as a, I wouldn't call it either an advantage or a disadvantage. It's just kind of an element, I guess, of of the format uh, or of this especially heavily improvised approach is that I think I would venture to say that the most successful of the sort of improvised riffs tend to happen with one or two people. I think it's harder to make that magic happen the more people you add to the the impro- improv. You know, uh, Spinal Tap managed to do some, some very good, you know, kind of four person bits but for the most part you know these are kind of you know the the memorable lines are something that like one person says or maybe it's a you know a a conversation between two people but once you get beyond that it can get a little more chaotic in waiting for guffman i think you kind of see it in some of the rehearsal scenes where you know it's a it's a it's a little flaily you know and it's it works in the context of some very flaily performers uh, put, putting on a, a show ineptly, but you know it, it doesn't. Nec- it can't necessarily be drawn out over feature length at that scope. You need to keep like coming back to these kind of small one-on-one or two interactions. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's a it's a kind of a principle that um, he sort of moved forward with. With yeah, best in show is just you know you've got couples with dogs or or you know or maybe a, even a single single owner of some of the dogs and just or or you kind of find a couple of actors you know like Eugene Levy and and Catherine O'Hara and and a mighty wind who have a certain who play off each other really well and and so you don't have that so yeah I think things maybe seem a, a little ragged and chaotic when you don't when when not everyone is necessarily on the same page you know and, and of course you, you have the trio and this is spinal tap but those those guys again have a lot of experience together they you know a, a guest and uh, michael mckeen and harry Shearer uh to kind of be able to to know you know they just kind of have a rhythm together like a it's like a jazz band or something mm-hmm. well and to bring it back to the mockumentary format like this it's been a while since I've seen Spinal Tap, but I feel like uh, Guffman uses a lot more of the sort of talking head a- a- approach than Spinal Tap does. Oh, it's, you, you know, yeah. yeah. Usually, you get Rob Reiner interviewing him, interviewing, interviewing, yeah. interviewing yeah. characters. So it's more of a right. back, back and forth that way. Yeah, exactly. So in here, you kind of get the the documentary talking head approach a lot, and it does allow for that sort of one person or two person riff, you know, in a in a movie context without it being a bunch of scenes with one or two people in it. It it, it creates a nice space for that improvisational dynamic. I, and I think I think the the single person thing was something that I think guest eventually figured out that that 
Fred Willard is just best on his own. Yeah. <laughs> if you just let him, if you just uh, kind of do like a, a, a cut to him, you know, going on about what happened or something like it's going to, that's going to kill. You don't need anything else to add to that uh, or anyone else to play off, though he's quite good in this. Though, I, you know, I, one of the things, though, I w- will say about the group dynamic in this movie is, and this kind of comes into my next question about Corky, is that, is that I think you expect based on how chaotic this production seems, how bad it seems in a lot of ways, how much faith that we as uh, we, we, we might not have in in somebody like Corky to to pull off the production, like that is that sentiment is completely not shared <laughs> by any of the people in. Uh, around him uh, you know particularly bob balaban because i was because the, the movie sort of sets up bob balaban who's 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 been the guy who's made the the town musical every year for him to kind of step back and be the musical director and let corky take over seems to naturally set up a tension between the two of them and and, and it doesn't really materialize there's kind of like yeah. this ongoing respect of corky's vision that I th- I think it's kind of interesting and kind of, and it sort of helps the film I guess in terms of in terms of making us feel like he's not entirely a figure of fun that there's some kind of you know integrity and vision to what he's trying to do even even when it looks completely silly and ridiculous. Yeah, I mean a couple of things. I, I think it helps that he is, as you said, he's kind of he's beloved. I mean, people actually do like him and like working with him. And when you get to the play, it's not bad. I mean, it's silly and it's amateurish and nobody can sing. But but as a small town sesquicentennial, that's 150 years uh, celebration. <laughs> it's 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 pretty accomplished. I think I think you pronouncing sesqu whatever the hell that was is uh, I think that was accomplished too. You're just oh, thank pronunciation. You. <laughs> thank okay. you. Yeah. Well, and also to bring it back to Bob Balaban's character, the music is very good and a com- like like mm-hmm. I I I don't know if I quite agree with you, Scott, that uh, Lloyd his character is really supportive of Corky. I, I kind of feel like that's more of a the tension there is more of just a, a dog that didn't bark situation mm. than uh, any than anything else because we do get some moments between them, especially like when Corky quits mm. in a, in, a, in a fit of pique and uh, Lloyd comes comes in to try and you know take take it back over, and that's kind of like the end of that dynamic between them but then you do get this like kind of great triumphant moment for lloyd during the play when before they even start you know during the the overture and like that orchestra is pretty good (laughs) you know like it's it's quite good more much more accomplished than anything else uh any of the other performances that are happening on that stage so I, I I do like that Lloyd gets his his moment there, but uh, yeah, I kind of feel that he uh, was supposed to be kind of Corky's main doubter, but it just like didn't play out in the final cut the way it was maybe set up to play out. I can buy that. I want to I kind of want to zero in for, for a bit on on Corky as a character because I think you know this is something I kind of got into a little bit with the introduction is that you watch a film like this is spinal tap you know in which he plays nigel tufnell and this is spinal tap is a parody of you know the the pomposity and excess of rock and roll which is 
you know, that's a meaty subject, right? I mean, that, that is a solid satirical target if there ever was one. This is a little bit different because you're really, you know, if you're kind of making fun of a guy like Corky, whose claim to fame is, well, not even a claim to fame. He was, he's been jettisoned from, from uh, New York City and is now in this you know, small town making this small production that that he hopes you know uh absurdly will will you know maybe pave his way back to new york but is there a distinction to be made i guess between corky and a character like nigel tufnell in terms of the film's approach and in terms of your feeling i guess as an audience member about you know the film's tone or attitude towards corky i mean it's a little bit of a punching up versus punching down scenario in terms of Nigel being, you know, a sort of top of the world uh, figure and Corky being, you know, brought quite low. But in both cases, they are characters who have so much confidence, whether self-confidence, whether earned or not, that I think it kind of undercuts any sense of, like I said, punching down with with, with Corky. Also, just kind of the fact that he, I mean, he is like the star in whatever room he's in the same way, in, 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 in a similar way, you know, it's just that the context is much, much smaller. So, and I think there's also a little bit of an element with this movie that we can maybe get into of, you know, him being an outsider, you know, uh, who, who comes to Blaine. And I find I found it very interesting watching again to note that at the end of the movie, everyone involved in the production also leaves Blaine, mm-hmm. you know, and they involved in this production celebrating this city that they all end up abandoning to to pursue their stardom. And that all kind of seems to stem from Corky. So hmm. I, it almost turns him into a, I don't quite want to say a malicious figure, but, you know, in the context of, you know, this community that is, you know, so excited by him and by this production and so excited to see themselves reflected in it, then to just kind of abandon it is a little... I don't know. It's kind of shitty, right? <laughs> well, well. How about how about how about? Wouldn't you look at it though as like he has gotten them to imagine a world larger than the one they currently occupy? That that, that he's gotten a pair of travel agents who have never left town except sure, for except sure, for an like, operation. <laughs> sure, City. like 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 the, those you know four people in in the play, but the the rest of the town that that loved him and supported him. What about poor Steve? Steve was so excited <laughs> for for Corky, you know. Yeah, and just like and you know, it, you know, it's tragic that 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 they weren't able to live obviously the way the life they needed. Yeah, to. they were obviously meant to be together, right? Or at least right, you know. right. That that's kind of the and that's the sweet ending, you know. And the the movie didn't really go that. go that direction. We, yeah, but but Parker Posey's character does, you know, it can dream of a healthier blizzard or <laughs> blizzard. Yes, <laughs> dreaming of stuff, more stuff that she can put on ice cream or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, what about the significance of Guffman to this story, and 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 then, then of course the, the the man who ultimately takes his seat. Um, uh, I mean, it is in the title. It's probably something we should talk about. Well, Guffman wanted to be there. We find out later, right? <laughs> that, that's he, at least good. That that part is good. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. fate that keeps yeah. him away and not... not. Uh... Well, Corky tells us that, at least. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All of our information about Guffman comes 
via Corky. Uh, even the the telegram, I guess. Was it a telegram? Who's, are people sending telegrams it's still a, at this point? I think it's a call. It's a note that, that he's given. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. I think that the government, that more Guffman is definitely planning to go to this production. I, I, I didn't quite. Yeah. I took, it, I took it at face value. Yeah, I think I do too. But I'm also kind of interested to think about it from the other direction. I, I, I just kind of more as a thought exercise than anything. I like thinking of of Corky St. Clair as this more maybe conniving figure than, than he is, just to add a, a, another layer to it. But uh, specifically the the ending beat of, you know, him getting an audition in My Fair Lady as, a, as an I'm sorry, um, and him preparing the completely different part from the one that he is auditioning for. Love that little detail. Yeah. Yeah, it occurs to me that the... You know the 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 epilogue is really kind of the only thing that stops it from having a, a sweeter ending, which is yeah. you know maybe maybe you didn't enter- entertain Guffman, but what's wrong with showing Roy Loomis a good time? You know right. uh, he really seemed to enjoy the play and was was thrilled to meet everybody, and it's like maybe that's good. It's it's almost like the um, you know you're almost going toward like uh, Sullivan's Travels sort of sort of uh, moment there, but then the kind of the, the what, what happens next kind of yanks that out from under the film. Yeah, that's uh, it is all kind of confined to the epilogue. You're, you're you're right, and I mean, as far as like what Guffman represents, I mean, I think he is sort of a a figure of ambition, of dreaming big. You know, he like none of these people, half of them didn't even consider being in a play before Corky came around, and now they're thinking that they have a, a legitimate shot at, at going to Broadway. There is something to be said for you know planting those seeds of dreams in people and and nurturing them, and like that is you know, certainly the sweeter reading of what Corky does and, and Guffman by extension. But then as you point out, Keith, maybe the that is undercut uh, by the, the epilogue of every of them just abandoning the the town that they were celebrating to pursue those dreams to uh, I wouldn't even say varying degrees of success to, to little to no degree of success. <laughs> yeah. The thing that ends up feeling somewhat cruel, though, is is the vast different distance between their dreams and then the reality of their actual abilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which are so which are so limited. Uh, I think we could feel pretty comfortable, uh, you know, confident saying that maybe Mort Mort Guffman went, might not have had as warm a reaction as as uh, the man who ultimately fills uh, that seat. But I like that. I mean, but the but that whole the way that whole thing plays out is so is so nice, and it, and it ultimately kind of gets us to the core of of the audience that the play ultimately does reach you know and and a guy who who is delighted by the play and is clapping along and who gets to go also back also an out of towner for what it's right, for what it's worth like, like, to, like and, yeah. maybe the only one in the only one in that auditorium who's not from blaine and he enjoyed it still so. and, and, and kind of starstruck but be able to be able to go behind the scenes and, and meet the cast and i mean this is kind of a big deal get a balloon. yeah get a, it's a it's a kind of a big deal moment and so so on the scale in which this theater operates it just absolutely delights everyone who attends i mean this is not this is a massive unqualified success this this play and and i think that 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 kind of you know gives you a pretty good feeling on top of the fact that i think it does play a little bit better than the rehearsals oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. so that so there's that 
and this maybe goes back to what we were talking about with the mockumentary improv format is in the sort of preparation of the plate, like we see so little of the of the actual rehearsals. And specifically, we see so little of anything outside of sort of the core group, you know, quote, unquote, singing and dancing, you know, but like when the show actually happens, like it's fairly impressive, <laughs> you know, like the sets, the the costumes. I mean, the costumes are ill-fitting, maybe, but you know, <laughs> yeah. um, as as already said, like the the music is is quite good. You know, it's as a production, it's operating on a relatively high level, at least in this context. But we don't really see all the other aspects of it coming together because we're just really focused on the silliness of the acting troupe doing what they do. Yeah, and I, but I think it sets us up for a disaster too with Eugene uh, Levy's character that never really comes to pass in terms of him having to perform without glasses. Like that, that doesn't really. I, you feel you, you think he's going to destroy the set, or there's just going to be yeah. like, like some embarrassing Mr. Magoo moment on stage, and it just never really doesn't really happen. It's it not seems the to be mostly is, there. So. Because so, Eugene Levy can do that with his eyes, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's 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 all about the cross eye gag uh, right. in, in the end. There's a <laughs> lot and, of and he, dead ends. He stumbles a little coming off of the uh, horse he too. Did. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> of dead ends here. Like David Cross's character just is just kind yeah. of there for a couple of laughs and then disappears. And actually, this is the first time I ever spotted Odenkirk uh, waiting outside the audition room. I I have to assume there's a deleted scene of of Odenkirk actually auditioning somewhere. Yeah, you could you could certainly lose the David Cross scene. <laughs> the film would be just fine. I like it. It's, it I really fi- I find it quite funny though, especially about the the weather always being what sixty eight degrees with a forty percent chance of rain <laughs> in the cir- <laughs> in the crop circle. Yeah, yeah, that is that is that is that is a pretty good bit, and it's and it's and it's good that and he, I mean it's and it sets up the uh, the UFO part of the the, uh, the play, probing. I guess. So that's yeah. the, that's my least enjoy. That's the least entertaining part of the blaine story for me to me to me you just can't beat the (laughs) salty the salty air of uh we're of being in california when you're uh, in the middle of missouri Uh, Uh, i think i I think i'm more of a stool boom gal myself uh, but i I like that it's i like that it's uh that that it's uh president william mckinley's uh whistle whistle stops tour um why not blaine why not? Why not? Um, so I want to like uh, maybe this is just kind of a me in the '90s thing, but I I wanted to ask you all about uh, Corky's wife uh, Bonnie, who is all not in town, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I was curious about what what uh, what you made of that, what that what that kind of says about the people of of Blaine, or or, or maybe the American people in in sort of the don't ask don't tell era that was 1996. This is the same year as Ellen's coming out episode or the year before or, or close to it, right? I feel like that was sort of a, a turning point for representation, but also kind of more sophistication among the general public about about these sorts of things. I, I, um, I, I, I long story short, I, I actually believe that this person could not raise that many eyebrows. His absentee wife might not even raise that many eyebrows in a place like Blaine, particularly a, a slightly comically exaggerated place like Blaine in 1996. 
Yeah, the the 1996 phenomenon it reminded me of in that respect is uh, the Rosie O'Donnell show, which also premiered this year. And uh, she had like a a long running gag about uh, her crush on Tom Cruise. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you guys recall that Uh at all. Uh, And kind of a a similar, uh, you know, beardy vibe happening there. You know, and as for how it plays out here, like, it kind of comes across as something that the people of Blaine need uh, to allow them to embrace Corky to the extent that they have and to maybe explain him there's that one scene where uh uh mrs pearl you know she's the one who says you know we've we never really really seen her and she <laughs> kind of frames it as you know like you know maybe the fact that she's gone so much is, is the problem you know um so i think it just maybe allows some smaller minded people to uh, create a narrative that allows them to embrace a, a character like corky yeah I mean, there's a knowledge of what, you know, you, you, <laughs> of, uh, but again, it's that don't ask, don't, don't tell thing. It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we kind of know what the deal is, but we can all pretend that this is not what the deal is. Uh, and so yeah. you move forward. But it, it, to me, it's kind of an interesting marker of that time that, that uh, you know, is, is fascinating just just from a sort of a time capsule perspective from uh, to see in the year. 2023 um mm-hmm. so i so i have a, a a question for you uh uh to, related to the end of the film which of these items would you like more my dinner with andre action figures das boot action figures or remains of the day lunchbox uh i could i actually have one of the brat pack paper mache figurines oh, right. instead <laughs> yeah he's got those too he's got it's a pretty good collection of memorabilia so I was going to say my dinner with Andre action figures because it would be my only chance to get a Wallace Shawn action figure. But a, a quick Google assures me that I could get the Grand Nagus character from Deep Space Nine, which he which he played uh, in action <laughs> figure form. Nonetheless, I think I, I would probably would still go with I, I'm not going to get Andre Gregory action figures anywhere else. So I'll, I'll go with that one. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's interesting. I, to me, I, I really did want to have – I like the idea of having – you know, director action figures that I could <laughs> play. With. I still kind of like that idea. Uh, well, I was sure you were going to say the remains of the day. Oh lunchbox. no, one hundred percent. No, one hundred percent remains of the day lunchbox. Uh, it's just there's nothing. I don't. I, I, it's just it, what a what an unlikely piece of uh, merchandise that would be. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna say uh, remains of the day lunchbox. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Oh, I see. Keith is sending us. Uh, sending I, I us dropped. Later. I dropped a link to the Grand Nagus action figure, and uh, I do have a birthday coming up in December. So, you know, <laughs> if you're looking okay. for gift ideas, okay, I'll uh, I'll keep that in mind. We're gonna we're gonna store more of our observations in our remains of the day lunchbox until we get to uh, the the next episode. Uh, but for now, it's uh, time for feedback. Okay, it's feedback time. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting. The Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast was hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh go deep into the Indiana Jones franchise with a review of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. 
in their top five Indiana Jones moments. As for feedback, we got a letter from Elroy about Asteroid City, uh, which is the most Jetson-y line I've ever said, even though he's talking about Asteroid City. Um, uh, which in uh, Asteroid City happens to be available now digitally, uh, which kind of makes this curious because it's still doing pretty well in theaters. But anyway, I would like to lo- warn listeners up front that this letter is really intended for people who have seen the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, maybe it's time to clock out and then join us for the next episode, 54321. Genevieve, want to read it? Sure. Elroy writes, the central question of Asteroid City is, did playwright Conrad Earp die of a car accident or by suicide? It being the 50s, it would not be unusual for a famous person's suicide to be described as a, quote, accident. This is a question that Jones Hall, who is the true main character of the film, not his own character, Augie Steenbeck, cannot seem to answer. Hall and Earp were lovers, but few reviews seem to remark on that fact. An actor has to perform in a play that was the last work of his lover. And what is the play about? Death. The atom bomb, alien invasion, grief, death rays, the desert, McCarthyism, suicide, Macbeth references, artistic failure, war shrapnel. Everything in the play must be understood that it was created by the Conrad Earp character. Was Asteroid City a cry for help? A play as a suicide note? And since the relationship was probably a closely guarded secret, he cannot talk to anyone directly about that matter. He must suffer in silence while he plays the grieving widower. And like all great method actors, he is quote unquote using it. Hall is trying to interpret the play from inside to understand what happened to Earp, and he can't. Why? Because his director cut the emotional climax about letting go for time, and maybe because he's going through a divorce. Hall interprets the wife's monologue as a message from Earp, a final goodbye and permission to move on, proof that he loved him. Also a commentary that a love story between two men couldn't be directly portrayed in the 50s and had to use a woman as a medium. And that's why the movie wraps up so quickly afterwards. But there is the case that for as dark as the play Asteroid City is on the surface, it also has a fair bit of hope as shown by the next generation of kids. Maybe Conrad had more faith in them than in his own generation. Maybe that's who he was trying to reach with the play. Maybe it was a car accident and the monologue wasn't for Hall. But art isn't all about intention. It's as much about interpretation and what you take from it. The play gave Hall what he needed, no matter what Earp was trying to say. I love this letter, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, that kiss between those characters for me was like a lingering, like, well, what's that doing there element? And this kind of, this is a really, I think, pl- a very strong reading that explains that. It kind of like also, I, I do like the way, I do think it, it's, it makes good, is a good explanation for the divorce, you know, the, the divorcing couple scene, like, and, and why that scene might have been cut from um, from the play. And also, it, it only occurred to me, we, hearing the letter, that it was the director, Adrian Brody's character, who cut that scene and not the playwright. I, I don't know why I was kind of conflating those two as in terms of who would cut it. So that also adds another layer to it. So yeah, I, I, this is a really strong reading of this. I was, I was really, um, really happy to get this letter. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's been, it's, you know, too long since I've seen the movie, but it kind of, this letter really reinforces in a big way, something that I always think about after I see a Wes Anderson film, which is that I need to see this movie again. <laughs> Cause I I'm certain I missed a whole lot, particularly with asteroid city. It just, it, it just, I, I, I you know, I, I know when you saw it, Keith, you felt like, you felt like you had a pretty firm handle on it, but I just, I didn't, I will admit, I think, um, I think there's a lot of things that I missed. And, and, uh, I think, I think Elroy's letter here really underlines, you know, how rich a, f- a film it is and, 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 and why it's 
told the way it is as this play within a TV show within a film. So, so, uh, so yeah, I love this reading and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing the film again with this letter in mind. So thank you to Elroy for sending it. Uh, and of course we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we could feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about theater camp, in which talented children live out theatrical dreams that may be more plausible than Corky St. Clair's. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, you'll always have a place at the Dairy Queen. Mm -hmm.